We'll get to Psalm 8 in a moment. Um, I, again, I, I never assume, or I, I assume every week that we have guests, and uh, I'm thankful for you. If you're visiting us today, we want to make sure that you're included uh, in our story if this is where you're going to join us as your church home. And so I begin with uh, the piece of news that's uh, not news to most people, but as has to be stated at the beginning. My 13-year-old daughter died uh, on October 6th, and uh, we continue to grieve. And this is my second week back in the pulpit um, since a time of grief, uh, which continues to go on, but I, I took that time off thanks to this church for allowing that and being gracious during that time and helping so much. But I want to begin with the, the truth of the story that we believe as those who follow Jesus Christ, as his disciples. And there are many ways that we can say it, but the way I want to say it this morning is this. We live in the real world, and you're not out of the real world right now. Sometimes people act that way when we go to church, that everything out there is the real world, and in here is some fake world that we're in for just a little while, an hour, or whatever it is. This is the real world right now. You're in it. You're also in it out there. They're both the real world. It hasn't changed. But both out there and in here, the problem is our reality that we live in is broken. It's broken by the power of sin. Some of that's our fault, and some of that's the fault of others. We're part of it. It's not all us, but some of it is. And we have a hope in the midst of that as those who follow Jesus Christ, and that is restoration. Not everything's broken. You and I as humans are still created in the image of God. There's still something of that goodness there that God created from the beginning there, but it's fractured, it's broken, it's vandalized in some way. And some of us wear that in bigger ways than others. Some of us experience that in different ways than others, more profoundly and more obviously. And our hope is that God is going to restore what's broken through Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news this morning? You're quiet. I think we're as squirrely as the kids were. Our hope is that restoration, and we are designed a specific way. We're designed to respond to God, and we're designed to respond to God's work of restoration. And of course, we recognize the truth is that some of us will do that in this world, and some of us won't, unfortunately. As I said, my daughter, uh, Elia, passed away, and uh, at her memorial service, uh, by request, we, we played her baptism video when she was about 10, is when that happened, and she talked about how she liked to compare Star Wars with God, that Jesus is our only hope. Thanks be to God for that. Jesus is our only hope. And what I've discovered when we, when we talk about that, and what I've discovered particularly as we've been grieving and, and it's rediscovered, is what I should say, because I've seen this so many times, is that the reality of our convictions is revealed in times of crisis. Do we believe it or do we not? We will find out when a crisis happens what we really believe. Crisis points reveal if our hope is high enough, robust enough, put in the correct thing, or it reveals if it will, our hope will simply crumble because it's too low and not put in something strong enough to sustain us in times of crisis. And this really matters because we are poorly served by a faltering hope in the best of times. Then when crisis 
hits, we will collapse with a low hope in the worst of times. It reminded me this week, as I thought of this, much like Jesus' parable when you have the bridesmaids waiting for the, the groom to come through, and half of them run out of oil and have to go get the oil, and they miss the party because they're searching for something they can't actually find. We don't want to be in that position, and, and the times of crisis reveal if our hope is actually in the right thing. God has so much more in store for his creation. We need to put our hope in Him and in Jesus Christ as our Savior. So I want to turn to Psalm 8 this morning and see some important truths that pop out of this that reflect and reflect on our hope and putting our hope in the right place. This is a, a favorite psalm of mine. It's a remarkable one. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. I want to point out four simple truths. They'll be on the screen. So if you're using your fancy notebook this morning, you can write them down. And we'll make something of them in just a moment. But these are four things that popped out to me immediately from the text as I, I went through it. One is God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. That's an important thing to recognize. Uh, I had a professor years ago in college who pointed out that Psalm 8 is really a commentary, the first commentary we get on the creation story, on Genesis 1 and 2. And I believe he's absolutely right. And that's what you see. God is a God of order, putting everything in place, not allowing things to be chaotic. And that means that God is intentional. God is aware of who he is. God is aware of who we are. And God can be connected with those things. God is intentional. God didn't just willy-nilly, haphazardly put together this order. He, he did it with intent and purpose. And you can put behind this, and we'll see this a little later, that means God cares for what he created. That means you and me. Third, we can see that God is a seeking God. He didn't just put it in order. He didn't create it with intentionality and say, now you're on your own, see in a million years and see if you made it. No, he's intimately involved with what he's created. Right there with it. Caring for it, sustaining us. Fourth, God is to be praised. And if we translate that, and that's really the kind of the key thing I want us to, to keep in mind this morning, God deserves a proper response from his creation, is what that means. And that's going to come in the form of praise as one of our primary vehicles of that response. We're designed, in fact, to respond to the God who created us. And praise is part of that design. Now, I want to explore something that we see that comes in Psalm 8 
and also came out of our text from last week. We looked at Jesus' interaction with the Sadducees, and I'll bring it in. You, don't, you didn't have to be here last week, but they, they relate because we've been talking about hope these past couple weeks. I want to relate to you a story that happened uh, when we were planning the memorial service for Elia just a few weeks ago. We, uh, I'll say this up front, um, you know, she, our Elia had a disability. She was on palliative care or had a palliative care team over the last year and was on hospice. So we knew that that end was coming sometime. We just never knew when. There wasn't a time frame for it. Um, and we'll, I'll bring up a few details about that later for in the thankful section. But we didn't want to plan a funeral before she had passed away because we didn't want to go there already. So when this all happened, we hadn't done any of the, that work on purpose. We didn't want to live there. So when we had to do this, everybody was so wonderful in the process of planning a memorial and, and all the burial and everything that goes into that. But uh, one of the vendors I had such an awkward interaction with, and, but it relates so well to what we're going to say. And they were trying to be so caring. They really were. Um, it just wasn't their skill. So, <laughs> you know, we're, we're in the midst of grieving, figuring this all out working it through, and I won't tell you who and what vendor or anything like that, because again, everybody was so good, but as we walk into this person's place of business, they, they start, uh, they immediately start telling us that, oh, my, my mom just passed away, you know, a year ago, and I've been grieving too, and I know what that's like, and, and God couldn't say no to anybody once they die. Well, already, I'm, I'm like, oh, theologically, I don't, I'm not there, man. Uh, I, I can't agree with you, but, but I, I'm not, I'm not going to bite. I'm going to go, because we've got business to do, and I'm I'm just in a different zone mentally. I'm like, okay, so we do all of our business. And then at the end, and it's already come out, of course, I'm a pastor and all that, because that comes out in those situations pretty quick. Um, At the end of it, we're sitting there, we've done the business, we're kind of trying to get out of there, and this person's a bit of a talker, and so they keep going on and on and on and on and on. And, and they say, you know what? Right now, your little girl is an angel in heaven looking down on your shoulder right now. You're a person of faith. You believe that, right? And just stare at me straight in the face waiting for me to agree with them. And my poor little mind is just spinning like, okay, there's like eight things that I want to correct here and I can't agree with it. And I don't even know where to go. And Stephanie, my wife, can see that I'm paralyzed. Because not only are we grieving, but my, like, the theological half of my mind is going, but wait, I want to correct everything. And my wife thankfully rescued me, and she's like, that's very thoughtful of you, and moved it on. Thanks be to God for her in that moment. <laughs> Humans don't become angels. It's a simple truth, and I want to proceed from there, but it's worth stating up front there are a lot of wonderful things that angels do, and I want to say a couple of things about that. One of them I'll, I'll point out right now is from Luke 16, 22. Jesus tells the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, and he says, uh, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Boy, if that's part of the job of angels, I'm so thankful for that care that God gives us. But last week we read a verse that I believe can be one of those things that leads us to this conclusion that uh, humans become angels. We read in Matthew twenty-two thirty, Jesus is talking to the Sadducees. They're trying to trick him. And he says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. He doesn't say they will be. They'll be like them. And actually, that is true, actually. If you look scripturally, there are some things that angels uh, model for us that will be similar, but we won't become them. 
And, and I want to, I'm exploring this a little bit as we proceed on, not because I think it's such a, a long, we, we don't need to spend a ton of time on it, but I want to transition us to some thoughts about what this means to, to make sure that we have the right kind of hope in the end. So let's, let's look at a few slides of angels right now from art history. We won't do too many, but I found this interesting. I was looking at this this week, and here you have about a, I think this is a 17th century uh, picture of angels and you see this a lot in art. Has anybody noticed this? Fine art, angels are naked babies quite often. Isn't that the oddest thing? Now, what's interesting is I also noticed that angels quite often come to us this way, either super innocent, here are highly skilled musicians apparently, but super innocent looking, or if you ever look, pay attention to this, they look like they're just on the edge of becoming a devil. Like they look like they're about to do the most mischievous thing ever. You can see it in their face. They don't come in between is what's interesting. So we, we have these ideas of, of angels throughout history because we've seen them everywhere. So let's go to the next one. Sometimes we see them like this. This is a, like a 15th, 14th century um, from the low countries in Europe. And here they're per portrayed as humans singing as a choir. This is a close-up. There's a nice organ if you see the, the bigger version of this. So we can see them as kind of humans. But we get them through popular culture now too, right? So here's one that's more recent, not super recent, but more. Here's Clarence, odd body, the angel from uh, It's a Wonderful Life, a wonderful movie. And he's a delightful character, isn't he? And there they get some things kind of right. There's a hierarchy of angels. I don't know that they advance like Clarence does, but there is a hierarchy that we can read about in scripture of angels. And I like Clarence, but I, I will say he can be bold at times, but generally speaking, he comes across as a bit... Um, Milk toast, milk toast humanoid, kind of, right? Not a real pushy guy. And then, of course, we get other cultural influences that come our way. I think a lot of us probably saw this kind of thing. Somebody dies and literally becomes an angel in cartoons most of the time, right? And we've, we've seen it through other shows, more modern movies and shows and things like that, that, that all kinds of different ways that people have conceived of, in not such biblical terms, what angels are, how humans relate to angels and that kind of thing. And I'll throw in one more. This is 13th century icon. Here I think they get it a little closer. It's hard to see on the little eye chart there, but you have angels and humans, and the angels are singing praise separate from humans. They're different. So I, I threw that in. That's more realistic. And, and let's transition. Let's move forward with this thought and, and move forward. Last week, what we saw with Jesus, he's talking to the Sadducees. The Sadducees are trying to trick him. Uh, they're basically assuming that whatever happens next, and they don't believe there's anything after this anyways, the Sadducees don't, but they're basically assuming that whatever happens after death is simply a replication of this life. And Jesus says it's not. Actually, there's something much greater that's going on. And as we heard and hear again this week, Matthew 22:29, Jesus told the Sadducees, he said, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And it's very important if we're going to have a, the right hope in the right place that this is our source that we know the scriptures and the power of God in order to understand what our hope is. And so somebody will come to us with the belief that humans become angels, or somebody will come to us with, the, uh, uh, with all kinds of other ideas because they're focusing on the human experience that we have and trying to give us comfort in that human experience. But it's going to be short-lived if that's all it is, just comfort in a human experience and not rooted in the truth. And so it leads me to a bigger question that I think is worth pondering as we consider the source of our hope and the source of what we believe. Is it possible 
that our priorities have been established by many things other than our Creator. Is it possible that we have allowed our hope to be filled in by all the movies and shows around us, by anything from uh, Looney Tunes to the current show Lucifer, the show from a few years ago, Lucifer, to, to wishful thinking sometimes, to chicken soup for the soul and to medieval art, from all kinds of other things except Scripture and the power of God, that we've allowed those things to infiltrate and fill in our hope. Is it possible that our priorities have been established by things other than our Creator, who ordered this world with intent and cares for us and wants to redeem us? Verse 5 of our psalm says, You've made them a little lower than the angels, humans, and crowned them with glory and honor. We're not angels. We're actually made lower than them. But look at the, the elevation that God gives to humans. We're crowned with glory and honor. He thinks pretty highly of us. But uh, that also means that he's looking for something more specific from us. And we heard wonderfully in the children's message this morning of what kind of responses God would expect from us versus something else. When Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, they tell him to stop, quiet your disciples. And he says, you know what's going to happen if they stop? Who's going to cry out? The rocks. And so from a rock, God would expect a rock response, I would suggest. From a dog, a dog response to his creation. From a cat, a cat response, whatever that is. They're going to knock everything off the edge of the world, I suppose. From rabbits, trees, armadillos, whatever it is, those animals and things are going to give their response that's in like or in kind with what they are. They're not giving a human response. I mean, my dog is really good at being a dog. My cat is incredible at being a cat. She doesn't have to think about it. She jumped in my lap yesterday while I was working at the computer. And then I did something that she didn't like, even though she chose the spot and gave me a nip on the hand to say, I didn't like what you did. Wait a minute. I was here first. Booted her out of the seat. She's an excellent cat. She's really good at it. Nobody has to tell her how to be a cat and respond to the world. From angels, God expects an angelic response. And we know some uh, rebelled. But by and large, angels give an angelic response. They do things like praise God. That's one of the things they do. They aid humans in fulfilling God's promises. They protect believers. They fight on God's behalf as his army. These are just some of the things we see them do throughout Scripture. But from a human, God doesn't expect the response of a rock, a dog, or an angel. He expects a human response. That's how he made us. He designed us with a response in mind. And our full hope and freedom is only going to come on giving a fully human response. We recognize that comes from a position of brokenness, and it's through Jesus that he redeems us and allows us to continue to respond as we're intended to. But we're to give a human response. And some of that might be imperfect sometimes. You know, I, I think, thank you, Bruce, for, for your uh, candor this morning in the announcements. I know even this week, um, I was thinking, uh, I, I had to think about my response. 
Um, I was taking our, our oldest 16-year-old to school, and as you get closer to the high school, you take your life into your own hands and pray a little bit more. And as we're getting there, you know, it's two-way traffic. There's students crossing all kinds of different ways. We're getting really close to the door. And every day, somebody tries something thinking, this is going to be the thing that gets me ahead in the line. Every single day, you see some kind of antic like that. So somebody tries to go around and pass against opposing traffic, realizes they can't do it. They make it two brilliant cars forward and pull in front of me and are able to sneak in there. And I turned to Sophie, our 16-year-old, and I said, this is a moment where I have to remind myself that I'm a redeemed man. Because <laughs> all I have is sarcasm in my head. And I wish I could broadcast it to the person in front of me with some kind of signage. But I'm a redeemed man. If we think of what our human response is supposed to be, and we think of the four points we pointed out at the very beginning, let me just run through some advancement on those points. The first thing is that God's order means freedom. It's a wonderful thing that God has done this and given us freedom in his order. God is a God of order, not chaos. And in his order, we experience freedom. When we live as humans, responding to his order and not against it. But what's interesting is what we actually call freedom quite often is chaos in this world. Doing the opposite of what God wants, often people call that freedom, and yet it's not. Right? And you, you hear that. I hear it actually quite a lot when people talk about religion in the broadest, of course, terms and, and say that it's very restrictive. Of course, we don't practice religion. We practice one specific one, following Jesus Christ and believe it's the truth. And, but they say it's restrictive. We need to be free from the bonds. People will do the exact same thing when it comes to marriage, for instance, that that's restrictive. Those vows are restrictive. The, the, uh, the intent that goes into that is restrictive. So let's just slide into something and see if it works and try it out. People will also do that more and more with their kids nowadays. Their kids can never be wrong. Everybody else is always wrong. And so the kids grow up without consequences and boundaries. But we know how this works out. What appears to be freedom is actually chaos. And how it works out is the kid who grows up without boundaries is not somebody you want to be your coworker someday or your daughter to marry. Those who slide in to these relationships without making the vows end up being completely unsatisfied. And then they do make commitments quite often with kids. Those are commitments, and yet those kids are unsatisfied. And then, of course, beliefs that are completely untrue, even if we think we've found freedom from the bonds of religion, whatever that means, that kind of faith is going to fall apart the moment trouble strikes just isn't robust enough to handle the world and reality. And if you think about it further, if you think about order in meaning freedom, we can think about it this way. What athlete has gotten really good at their sport without discipline, without understanding the rules of their sport? And frankly, who of us wants to watch a sport without rules? Boring, chaotic, not interesting. Same with a musician, for instance. What musician has ever gotten good at their craft and felt free by saying, I'm going to ignore everything anybody's ever said about the instrument I'm going to play and just do it my own way? There's no freedom there. There's freedom when you actually practice and have discipline and learn it with great skill, and then you are free. Then you enjoy it. 
How about a writer? What writer has ever thought to themselves, I'm not going to use real words in this book this time and see what happens? There's no order. Nobody wants to read that. And finally, we could all relate to this one. Who wants to go to a surgeon that says, I play by my own rules, right? I didn't go to medical school. I just open it up and just go for what I feel like is going to work. Nobody wants to go under the knife with that surgeon. We live in the real world. Our reality is broken. Our hope is restoration. And we're designed to respond to God's work of restoration. And God's order is freedom when we respond. It's not chaos. It's not bondage. It's not slavery. It's what we were intended for. Second thing we can say is that God's care is experienced through hope. Real hope. Verse 5 again of the psalm, We're made lower than the angels. We're still crowned with glory and honor by our Creator. That alone is a supreme expression of God's care for us. But then he goes further and points out, David points out that we were actually made to care for his whole creation. He didn't put the angels in that position. He put us in that position. Isn't that a supreme indication of care and in fact trust? That God trusts us enough to do that and care for his creation. Furthermore, if you look at verse 2, it won't come on the screen, but you can look at it. It says, he establishes a stronghold. Got to turn back. He establishes a stronghold or silences the foe and the avengers. A stronghold over our enemies. You know, if there are enemies, if there are foes, that means there are problems in the world. There are things that may go wrong. Crisis may come. And it's interesting to look at the fact that God created and cared for each generation from the beginning on through Psalm 8 and on beyond that. We know that. He cared for even the unfaithful generations, and there were a few. If there's no hope, why would God bother? Why would God bother to walk with us in the times of crisis? Why would he establish a stronghold against the enemies? Why would he care if there's no better tomorrow? But there is. And that's what he's telling us through his care and through walking with us in the difficult times and establishing the stronghold against our enemies. And so here's a question to ponder. How has God cared for you from birth until today? How has God cared for you from birth until today? And then the follow-up question is, have you responded by discovering his better tomorrow for you? Third thing I want to point out about this uh, as we consider what we said in the very beginning, with hope we can be thankful even in grief. This is my reality right now. And Thanksgiving comes up this week. Let's be thankful people. Again, we can reflect on Psalm uh, 8.2 says there are enemies and foes that, are abound, that abound. They're around us. We will face difficulties. If we face difficulties, why don't we just give up? Why don't we just stop right there? The faith that we have. Why don't we just give up if we follow Jesus Christ? Well, a faltering hope will give up in those moments. It'll say enough. That's, that's too much. But a hope that believes that God, uh, and, and a hope that believes that God actually has a better tomorrow is not going to give up. A hope that believes that we become angels or we become, that all are saved or that there's nothing after this, that's going to give into despair. But a hope that believes that God actually has something in store for his creation that's better tomorrow, 
if we simply put our hope in him, that faith is going to persist because God is with us. And we can be thankful even in the hard times. This has been a, a, a wonderful but difficult reality for us, I can say, as a family. I'll give you two examples. We never figured out why Elia's favorite number was 71, but we see it everywhere. We saw it everywhere in her life. We still see it everywhere. When we went to write the first check, you know, the down payment for the memorial service to the funeral home, check number 271 was the next one. Okay, God, I see that. We had a wheelchair accessible van. We made the decision to sell it shortly after uh, everything was taken care of after the memorial because it made the most sense of the situation. We ended up getting some proceeds from the sale right in the middle of that number, 71. Then we got a, the vehicle, the trade in, got a vehicle, go to the DMV just last week. The next license plate in the stack they hand to us, can you guess what number's on our license plate now? Okay, God, I see it. Thank you. Other one, I'll say, of, of a sense of thanks, and this is going to be heavier and different, but as I said, she was on hospice care for the last year, and we knew that because of her uh, condition, one of the every cold and flu and everything she got got worse faster and was more severe and harder to treat, and that's why we knew one was coming that she wasn't going to overcome. And we kept worrying as a family that it was going to be COVID or RSV or a flu or a cold that somebody brings in and then she gets it and we can trace it back to a person and then that's and the, we'll always walk with that guilt, whoever it was. COVID came through our house twice. She never got it. I never got it either. I don't know why. But it wasn't those things that did it in the end. None of us live with that guilt, which wasn't a real guilt to have anyways. But we're thankful. We continue personally to see God's grace, mercy, and goodness even in our grieving. And we're thankful. Never cease to be thankful to God. He's good. Finally, this is really the point of it all. Praising God feeds our hope. And I know I'm a little long-winded this morning, but I think we can handle it. Praising God feeds our hope, and it's the proper response to God and His goodness. Verses 1 and verses 9 are the bookends of the verse. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Those are verses of praise that tell us everything within this is an act of praise. Verse 2 it's so fascinating to me. It says, you, you, through the praise of children and infants. That is to say, from beginning of your life to the end of your life, you are to be people who praise. Verse 3 calls us to praise. When I consider. That says, everything you read from this point on, the response should be considering back what God has done. And the proper response to that is what the beginning and end said. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We should praise God, the whole psalm is geared towards telling us that everything we should do, our undivided attention should be focused on God. And when we praise God, we give attention to the right things. And that feeds our hope. And particularly, when we praise God with His people and with His Word, guess what else that does? That increases our vocabulary of praise so we learn more about who God is and how to praise Him better. 
it magnifies our understanding of our hope and of God's character and his care and action in the world. And we can actually take a lesson from the angels here because they do model for us something that we are to become. We don't become angels, and I believe that angels are with us right now. Thanks be to God for their presence. Angels praise God as the first instinct. We don't become angels, but we're shown what we're supposed to do at our best, at our most redeemed. Praise God continually as our first instinct. And interestingly, if you read throughout Scripture where angels pop in, even when you and I cease to be praising God, God is never without praise because angels are continually praising Him. And we join with that chorus when we praise the living God. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Through Him, God restores this broken world, and we are designed to respond to Him with praise. Let's indeed do that right now. Let's uh, pray and praise God. The band can come back up. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness and graciousness towards us. And right now, it would be silly for us to not actually praise your name. So we take time, even though we're a congregation of introverts, to speak out loud your goodness to us. Please speak out some words of praise to God. God, you are good. You are loving and graceful. You are caring and you intend good for us. Yes. Yes. God, may we continue to praise your name. Not in secret, but with one another. May we continue to praise your name from the beginning of the day to the end. Lord, may your name be praised, for you are good. Amen.